I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So as a reminder, at Climate Optimists, we rely on listener support to bring you the content you're hearing. So if you're a regular listener, consider joining our community of supporters by heading over to our website and clicking the donate button. And while you're there, sign up to be part of our community. We're planning to start doing a regular newsletter with more information on climate solutions and opportunities to get involved. This week, we're revisiting the topic of green buildings with a residential focus. If we could fast forward to the future to a climate-friendly community, you know, the first question I think a lot of folks would have is, well, you know, what does it look like? And our guest this week has a pretty compelling vision for greener neighborhoods that not only enables them to be carbon neutral, but less resource intensive and even more affordable. Before we get into the juicy stuff, Todd, can you take us through this week's Reason for Hope? Yeah. So the uh, 19th meeting of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species has uh, just wrapped up in Panama. After a couple weeks of negotiations here, uh, the parties agreed to a new and revised uh, trade regulations on 600 animal and plant species. That's awesome. Yeah, that list includes uh, sharks to frogs and uh, tropical tree species. So uh, a pretty wide array of uh, animals and plants that are that are covered. And so, uh, you know, this is obviously uh, essential given the increasing threat, uh, you know, from climate change and loss of habitat. So, yeah, pretty, pretty good news there. I, I got to confess, I didn't know that there was a convention on international trade in endangered species, but definitely an important thing in today's world where, you know, you go buy something at a store and you have no idea. You're, you're trusting the vendor to know that what you've got is something that's not contributing to, you know, another species decline. So moving to our main topic, our guest today to share his vision for urban communities as a climate solution is Vishan Chakrabarty. Vishan designs and advocates for a sustainable, attainable, and equitable urban future centered around human connectedness. He is the founder and creative director of the Global Architecture Studio Practice for Architecture and Urbanism author of A Community of Cities, A Manifesto for Urban America, and the forthcoming book titled The Architecture of Urbanity, Designing Cities for Pluralism and Planet. Vishan served under Mayor Bloomberg as a director of planning for Manhattan in the aftermath of 9-11. He also served as the dean of the College of Environmental Design at UC Berkeley and was a professor at Columbia University for a decade. Born in Calcutta, Vishan holds degrees from Cornell, MIT, and Berkeley, and we're stoked to have him on the program today. Vishan, welcome to Climate Optimists. Thank you. Great to be here. So we'll start you off with a question that we do all of our guests. Uh, When you think about efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Um, things like the Infrastructure Reduction Act, uh, or, excuse me, let me restate, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and, and the Infrastructure Bill, I conflated two things at once. I think both have 
really significant things in the, in the American context for lowering our carbon footprint. But I think it's not just the bills themselves. It's the fact that the things that climate advocates have been talking about for, you know, two decades, if not more now, have clearly made their way to center stage. And right. I think that is just as a gestalt incredibly important. You know, it's clear that, you know, with the conferences going on among global leaders and so forth, that like this is now taken very seriously. And the other thing is I have a lot of hope for what's happening in the marketplace around uh, climate and climate technologies. I mean, we all now know the statistics around the fact that renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels. And, you know, that's going to drive major change in the country. And also, you know, like I was born in India and what I can clearly see happening is the leapfrogging of technology, uh, just like what happened with cell phones. Like so many Indian villages never had landlines. They just went straight to cell phones, right? And so it's the same thing. You can imagine Indian villages going straight to solar, uh, and bypassing a lot of the other issues that, that we have with our current power grids. So we are moving towards a world where we now have to talk about adaptation and mitigation and especially resilience for the most vulnerable populations around the world that are going to be the uh, outsized uh, victims of what the rich countries have done to the planet. But Totally. But at least now there's a kind of framing around the problem, whereas like I'm old enough to remember when, you know, Inconvenient Truth came out that like it felt like there was a bunch of smart people tilting at windmills. And (laughs) I feel like we've moved past that moment into something more mainstream. Yeah, I mean, certainly there has to be a shared awareness, you know, given that we have a global problem, a shared awareness of the problem before we can solve it. And uh, I, I too sense that that shift in momentum that you're talking about and, and, and yeah, and I'm hopeful about the technological side too, because we know market forces have a huge impact on, on where we're going to land. Well, before we get into, you know, sustainable building, wanted to kind of ask like, what was your journey? Like, how did you find yourself where you are today, you know, focused in this space? So I think there's two aspects of my journey that are really relevant to this conversation. One is, you know, I'm, um, on, on my paternal side, I'm from a, a very rural village in northern India where, you know, you never see a garbage can. You know, we focus so much on technology and yet there are, you know, millions, if not billions of people around the world who live on a subsistence level who waste very little. And I think like it is really important for all of us who are privileged enough to live uh, in very wealthy societies to just kind of remember that as a starting point. And, and no one is saying we have to live like poor villagers in order to be sustainable, but there are just certain lessons about profligacy that I take from that, you know, grounding experience about what we don't have to do in order to live, you know, happy, fulfilling, prosperous lives. So that's one piece. And then an extension of that, because even though that is a village that's only a couple of thousand people, Ever since I was a teenager, you know, my parents were academics, my dad was a scientist, my mom was a musician and a librarian, and we traveled a great deal as kids with my parents on like really low budgets, but 
we saw a lot of the world's cities and I became very enamored with cities at a very young age and even into sort of college life and grad school life. And again, like the small Indian village, the city you see behind me of 8.8 million people here in New York, you know, we have some of the lowest carbon footprints per person in the country, not because we're angels, but because, you know, we live in apartments that heat and cool each other. We use mass transit, we walk, and we do all of those things because we enjoy it. So what I think is really important to remember about that is it's not some eat your spinach message about like how if you live a sustainable lifestyle, you're going to have like this horrible life, but quite the opposite. You know, millions of and now, you know, really over half the world lives in an urban setting because they want to by and large. And that is, I think, really important to remember. So this lifelong focus I've had on not just urbanity, but kind of collective living, whether it's at the scale of the village or the scale of the city, I think is what like really undergirds my interest in sustainability. And so as an architect, sure, I think about the technology and construction of buildings, but that has always with it the context of the collective character of our communities because it doesn't, no piece of technology is going to solve this without that belief in a collective culture. I think the, uh, the analogy of the village is a good one, right? The opportunity to learn what we can, to your point, we don't have to live, you know, like poor villagers, but there's, there are lessons to be learned in terms of, you know, the waste and, and the quality of life and, you know, how that isn't necessarily tied to material possession, right? Um, yeah. Well, let's let's get into buildings because I'm excited to talk about that. Maybe for context for folks first, uh, generally speaking, kind of what portion of our emissions come from buildings? And then kind of of that, how much, you know, do res- residential buildings account for? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, these statistics very wildly. You can look at different sources. This, I have seen numbers as high as 40% for the global building stock in terms of carbon emissions. And when you add cars to that, and we can talk about this, cars and buildings are sort of inextricably linked. Uh, you can get up into the 70s in terms of, so you're talking about the lion's share of the emissions in the world associated with lifestyle. And when you add meat to that, you've gotten to almost all of the equation. So like that, so that's, what's really extraordinary when you start looking at the numbers. And so buildings are a really big deal. And what's very hard about this is that shouldn't mean we should be anti-building. We've got, um, you know, almost 8 billion people on the planet. We will have close to 11 billion by 2100. Uh, that's a UN estimate. Well, so that's an additional 3 billion people on the planet. So you think about it, we have a housing crisis associated with the people who are on the planet today. On top of that, you're going to have a climate refugee crisis. So that's going to trigger yet another housing crisis, right? As people move from you know the tropics and into uh, other climates that are safer. And then like Portland, where you are, that's considered a big climate haven for a lot of people, although you guys have been having some pretty uh, hot summers from what I hear, right? Um, You know, and so there's this paradox, which is buildings are an enormous source of carbon emissions, both in terms of their construction and their operations. And at the same time, we need to house everyone with dignity. And there is a fantasy out there that we can somehow manage to do this with our existing building stock. 
you know, that there's a bunch of wealthy apartments that are empty in London and New York and, and Tokyo and the, none of that math works. You know, the fact is that we are going to have to build housing in order to have people live in some level of dignity as people move towards this steady state population and they are less poor. So we need that to happen, right? We need that steady state to arrive um, so we don't continue down this crazy population bell curve. And housing is a big part of what represents, you know, steady state security for people. It is their largest expense. So that is why the building industry is got this increasingly urgent pace associated with how do we build buildings in a more efficient way. And again, both in terms of embodied energy associated with the construction materials and so Concrete, which is what most urban buildings are built from, very, very nasty stuff in terms of high carbon footprint. Steel is fairly close behind that. Brick is better, but still not great. And then wood, and that depends on how sustainably sourced the wood is, but there are wood products like mass timber, which people are looking at that have lower levels of embodied energy. So what you build the building out of, and then obviously the operational energy of the people in the building, right? And how can you offset that through solar, wind? So let me unpack a couple things you talked about. When we're talking about buildings, obviously the built world's going to have to expand. And so there's, while that might seem daunting, there lies a big opportunity in that because if we can do that in a way that is, you know, lower carbon content on the building side and, and create those structures in a way that makes them more efficient and potentially even generating some of their own energy, that it ha- it doesn't have to be a problem, right? It has the opportunity to be, in a sense, part of the solution, if I'm if I'm understanding you right. Um, yeah, just with a couple of asterisks. Like, so the first is, I prefer to think about the built world having to intensify rather than expand. Okay. Uh, and the reason I make that semantic difference is that if in an effort to house all these people, both our existing populations and you know new population, we go into more sprawl. And I don't care if it's, quote, green sprawl, right? Like I could care less if people are building a bunch of net zero single family houses out there. It's still <laughs> largely, a dis- it's, it's largely a disaster for the environment because it's car dependent. And even if those are electric cars, there are all sorts of other issues having to do with there's very high battery usage, and so you got rare earths and all sorts of mining associated with that. That's pretty nasty stuff, has a lot of nasty geopolitical implications. And so even if you go to those models of a single family house with like lots of solar panels on it, that's then, you know, powering a, an electric car, you're far, far from the right answer in terms of what we need to do. So the reason I say intensify instead of expand is we need to densify our existing communities. So in the United States, for example, most cities between 1900 and 2000 over that century got way less dense as a a byproduct of the automobile. So we spread out. This was not just done by market forces. There was the Federal Highway Act. There's all this stuff that incentivized sprawl because it incentivized a a consumer culture, because if you have a population that lives in bigger houses, they need more stuff, you sell more stuff, people get richer. So, you know, we have to have a paradigm in the 21st century that is about densification. So that's the first step. And then the question is, when you densify, can you build housing uh, and other forms of building, but mainly housing, that again, 
adaptively reuse existing buildings where you can. There's some opportunity now with some older office space in the in the aftermath of the pandemic that has a lot of that potential. But then add to that new housing that is, if not carbon neutral, carbon negative. And it's that's a big order. We did a lot of research in my firm about this and found that this is pretty easy to do at about three to four stories, which might sound like sprawl to you, but actually you can build a lot of urban density at three to four stories. You can get 30 to 40 units an acre. That's enough density to support mass transportation. And you can get that to carbon negativity with our existing technology between solar and wind and battery um, technology and so forth. So it is saying that you got to make our cities more dense with the right kind of carbon negative housing or carbon neutral housing without relying on single family housing, which is something that I think most communities are moving away from now. And, and so given that, like, it sounds like that it isn't just good enough to go in the long term carbon free, but we also need to be more efficient with the resources that we have. You know, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's about the type of structure, but also where that structure is built. And I guess I'm wondering, I mean, what would this look like if you take an existing city, let's say a Portland, and overlay these type of structures? I mean, Portland's a really interesting example because it's got an uh, it's got an urban green boundary, right? So you can't sprawl, as I understand it. But even if it didn't, what I find just fascinating, I, my firm does a lot of work across um, many cities in America. And most cities in the United States have an astonishing amount of available land in the form of parking lots and just low density structures. I'm always just astonished by it. You know, so take a city like Austin, which has seen a huge amount of growth, of tech growth. There's very little mass transit there. There's still a lot of park there. We're talking about Texas at this point, right? But like, right. so they passed, they passed a bond issuance to do light rail. And now there is, I think, the opportunity to fill in a lot of those parking lots with the kind of housing that I'm talking about. And here's the thing, three to four stories that can actually fit into a single family neighborhood. You know, a three-story apartment building is about, you know, 35 feet tall, right? There are single family houses that are 35 feet tall. Like it's not the craziest scale in the world, right? To try to, you know, insert into existing communities without it being this jarring scale transformation. And so, I mean, what's interesting, what I'm, what I surprise myself with in this conversation is like, 10 years ago, I wrote a book that was about a lot of these issues. And so much of it was focused on skyscrapers and very focused on like big cities around the world, the Hong Kongs, the Tokyos, the Manhattans. What I found increasingly is that the challenge of urbanization and building uh, a more green environment has less to do with those places in part because they are already quite green. So Hong Kong is one of the greenest places per capita in the world. Um, which surprises a lot of people because people associate green with seeing a tree outside your window. And Hong Kong actually does have a lot of nice national parks, but it's just, again, it's because of mass transit and apartments. And so steadily, my focus has moved into the kind of smaller cities around the world where they're still pretty auto dependent. People still drive to do a lot of things, even though they live in a city. And there isn't good mass transportation as a consequence because there is there's a vicious circle between a lack of density and a lack of good mass transit. So so thinking about these, I guess, three and four story buildings, what 
other characteristics do those structures need to have? So, you know, obviously sure. we're saying that those are more efficient, you know, for various reasons, but what, what do they need to have to be kind of that solution to the future? So the reason I'm so focused on that scale is, so go back to your single family house that's net, uh, that's carbon negative. And that is actually possible in a sunny climate. You can build a wood house, put a bunch of solar panels on the roof, say there's a family of four living in that house, you can generate way more energy than that family of four needs. They put energy back into the grid, they can power their car with it and so forth. But again, the problem with it is it's sprawl. But how, how can you take that model and scale it up to a denser model that isn't sprawl? And so what our math showed is that in most sunny climates, um, and again, we'll talk about batteries in a second, you can use solar on a three or four story residence that actually has a fair number of people in it, right? Because it's a it's 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 not a townhouse, it's like a row house model. And what's interesting is you know where you see this model the most around the country is senior housing. It's like those three-story buildings. There's, you know, like, you know, and so so there's enough of a sense of a community. There's actually a fair number of people in that housing complex. There's enough roof area on those things to put enough solar that you can just get past the sweet spot of supplying more energy than they need. Now, you do need a battery system. Then you can add other things like composting and biodigesters for waste. You can add geothermal heating systems and cooling systems to take some of the load off the solar. So there are things that you can keep adding on. So this is all for me, very much a focus on existing tech. There's all sorts of new building tech out there from mass timber construction to solar glass, to uh, different forms of concrete that is less uh, carbon intensive. And I'm all for all of it. There's a lot of research going on. That's great. But I, I do think there's a suite of technologies that you can apply to these three or four story buildings that can get you ca to carbon neutral slash carbon negative and placing them in environments that are walkable and transit rich. And then the last thing I want to say about these is unlike skyscrapers, which tend to have very high construction costs and therefore they make sense in the Vancouver's and the Tokyo's and the New York's. These are buildings, these three or four buildings I'm talking about is like in the American context that largely be built out of wood. They're not very expensive to build. And therefore, in terms of housing affordability, which is the other key factor here, these carbon negative housing can't just be for rich people. It's, it's got to house the populations that are in crisis. That's something that we can do with that tech because it's fairly low tech tech. So I'm thinking of two questions. One, for those of us who are in single family homes and maybe feeling guilty as they're hearing this conversation. What I'm assuming there's both an opportunity to, to make our single family homes better and be integrating these, uh, you know, three and four story buildings in amongst us. And then secondly, I'm thinking we need policies in place that encourage the type of thing that we want. And in this case, you know, having more of these types of structures, what are some of the changes that need to take place to drive the development of those? Yeah. So actually, it's the same answer to both questions in, in my mind, because, and look, I'm not out to make anyone feel guilty. I'm not a saint. No one's a saint. Oh, no, I know. I know. Like, I, I, like I, I'm just not into the whole environmental sin thing. We all got here together. We got to get out of it together. The first thing that needs to happen, the most important thing that I think single family home dwellers need to do is stop fighting density in their neighborhoods. And this is now... Beca it's become a national problem. 
in some cases, it's more of a problem in progressive communities than it is in conservative communities. But the worst thing that happens in most single-family neighborhoods is that they fight new multifamily housing. They fight affordable housing. And so that's like an incredibly problematic thing. They fight mass transit sometimes. I mean, I grew up in a suburb outside of Boston that was supposed to get a subway line extension, the red line extension that was supposed to come through Arlington, Massachusetts. People in the 1970s stood up and said, we don't want the subway in our town. It means black kids will come through our town. And so if you go to Boston today, you'll notice that the red line extends to this place called Alwife, which is a parking garage at the end of a highway because people in the, you know, in the suburbs didn't want the subway out there. So there's a lot of things that have nothing to do with technology and like what technology you can add to your house that have to, that deeply, deeply impact this question at scale. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting in the post-pandemic circumstances is when you look at the data, you'll see that so much of the carbon emissions from automobiles don't have to do with commuting. You know, people live in these environments where you have to drive to get a quart of milk, you got to drive your kid to a soccer game, you got to drive to do just about anything. And that, that has an outsized impact on the environment. So people gravitating towards more walkable communities is, in my mind, way more important than building technology. So I'm hearing biggest thing, you know, all of us can do is, is embrace more density. Are there things that need to be in place that encourage those developers, not just to build densely, but to integrate these, you know, let's call them the off the shelf technologies that are there today that make the, the structures both efficient, you know, reducing their, the amount of energy they require and, you know, leveraging technologies that allow them to be, you know, energy generators. Absolutely. And so an upzoning where you go into a community and say, we're going to take this area, maybe this area that's near more transit and more retail and more schools and things like that. And we're going to add density to it. Well, an upzoning is, you know, other than printing more money in the federal reserve an upzoning is the only other way to legally create value out of literally thin air. And so the ability of a municipality and citizens to say, well, if you're going to get that value creation out of thin air, you're going to have to give back some stuff, right? And that should absolutely include green building controls in terms of, um, you know, again, all these technologies that we've been talking about. It should include affordability standards. Um, and so that should be the right quid pro quo. You can go too far to the point where the project becomes unbuildable because it's got so many social goods attached to it that like the, the project no longer makes any sense to build. I actually think in terms of governance, like, sure, we need the federal government to do things like pass these bills we've been talking about. But where a lot of the rubber hits the road is City Hall. And another thing that I think that citizens can really do is go to their local City Hall and say, you know, I live in Madison, Wisconsin, right? I want to support a certain kind of housing that is multifamily, is affordable, is carbon neutral or carbon negative. And supports a collective way of life. I mean, I think where this really boils down um, in this country is rethinking what we think of as success in terms of the American dream. And I actually think this is a global question because since the 90s, about 2 billion people have moved into the middle class around the world. And a lot of those 2 billion people 
have absorbed the ideas of the American dream is what they want, a house, two cars. And so what do you end right. up with? You end up with irrigated lawns outside of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, right? Like <laughs> that look like Phoenix. And I think that at that highest meta level of narrative about what we need to talk about is redefining what success means for young people. You know, the American dream, when it was first thought about in the 1930s, had nothing to do with material possessions. The American dream in the 1930s, when it was first invented, was about equal opportunity for citizens. And so I think if we gravitate back to the original story of that, that we can say we can be really successful, happy people who live in apartments in a small city and walk, you know, walk our kids to school and walk to work. And we live really joyous lifestyles as a consequence of that. And that's a dream. Right. Right. And like, if we can spread that, I think we will have done more than any technological solution can ever provide. Well, I, hey, I'm, I'm sold. Well, thanks, Vishan. I, I like the idea of this, this future looking, more tangible narrative. Thanks for coming on and, and talking about the promise of this kind of community design and and giving us, you know, insights into what we need to do to help, you know, give it wings. Sure. My pleasure. So Todd, what did you uh, think of the interview with Vishan? You know, I thought it was great. I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but uh, I'm in the business of facilities uh, here at the city of Portland. So I consider myself somewhat of a, an expert on this topic. No, actually, I, I don't know that much <laughs> about it all. Obviously, efficiency of buildings and stuff is, is definitely a part of the facilities world that I'm in. It was interesting. You know, I thought overall, it kind of felt like, uh, you know, this is a conversation about values, in a sense, and kind of a, a rethinking of the American dream in a sense and kind of consumerism in general and size of houses and what we need in them and number of cars. And it's really seemed like uh, just an overall change in outlook uh, to me. And that's kind of the way I was, you know, taking in the issue. I think you're, you're spot on Todd. I mean, it was really something grander. I mean, it was a, a bigger, a bigger vision, bigger, bolder vision for how we can be living. Yeah. And I liked how he framed it as something that, you know, I think a lot of times people get scared about when they think about solving climate change is they're going to have to, to give up everything, right? You're going to be, you know, back living, uh, living in, you know, the forest and building mud huts. But I think, yeah he did a nice job of addressing sort of those concerns and it's, it's not that we're, you know, having to give up a lot of the amenities of our lifestyle. It's that we're learning to live more efficiently and arguably, you know, in places that are, that build more community, right. And, and give you green space. And so there's all these kind of ancillary benefits even above and beyond the climate ones. What about you, Thomas? What did, what did you think? Yeah, look, I think, um, his whole philosophy is right on the money. We we need to be totally rethinking what we're doing when we uh, build these cities or you know redesign our cities for the future. Um, but I I definitely think that there needs to be some emphasis put around 
the long-term survivability of these structures. Um, because when, when you look at the amount of energy that goes into building these buildings, regardless of whether you're trying to do it with more climate-friendly products or not, it's massive. So I think what we need to be looking at is how do we improve the design life of these structures and move away from this sort of 40-year cycle that we have today and, and really like hash out a long-term plan. And, and, may, and that might mean that we use a little bit more um, you know, there might be a few more carbon emissions involved with the uh, initial construction of these buildings. We've put more effort into the insulation up front, so they've got way lower energy impact throughout their life. Um, and ultimately, you know, it, it creates something that's more sustainable for the long run. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we don't we don't want to be building disposable structures, and I think there are certainly places in the world, the U.S. included, where you know it's all about. Uh, kind of stamping out houses. Yeah, they need to be equally durable. And you make a good point too about the energy efficiency side. I mean, Vishan talked a little bit about kind of what these buildings might look like with solar panels and and some battery storage. But I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, like what, how are they going to be designed to be, you know, to be more efficient as well? Yeah. And, and that comes down to something I've been harping on to for a long time. And that, and that is we need to be going above and beyond what the insulation requirements are in most jurisdictions uh, today. We need to be really questioning how much glass we, we need in these structures because regardless of whether you've got double glazed or triple glazed glass, it's still terrible in terms of uh, heat transfer. And then on top of that, we need to be looking at thermal mass in these buildings. This is a, the problem with building uh, timber buildings is they often don't have a lot of thermal mass. So even though you've got, you might have good insulation, you know, assuming you build it into the structure, um, because there's not a lot of thermal mass, it's not very good at riding through the uh, thermal cycles from day to night um, that you see in a lot of places, especially dry climates where you might have very cold nighttime temperatures but high daytime temperatures. That, that's where the thermal mass really comes into its own because you're not having to have you know heating at night and cooling during the day. You're just sucking the energy out of that thermal mass. In other words, for folks who might not be familiar with thermal mass, but maybe can visualize, it's about, you know, if you've got a some some thermal mass, some concrete brick. I don't know if you have other examples, but if you have that in your your home, these three to four story buildings, then you're able to absorb some of that heat during the day. That building's going to stay warmer for longer before your your heat, let's say, has to kick in. So, lots of insulation, ideally some thermal mass, and both those yeah. things, I think, probably underrated. I, I appreciate your advocacy, but I think, you know, the problem to some degree is those things aren't sexy, right? It's not like a solar panel exactly. on your roof you can point to. But yeah, workhorses for sure. I think that's relatively standard, no matter where you are in the world. It's like, let's get that insulation on. Let's think about that thermal mass. The, the How you go about heating and cooling these structures is going to vary a lot depending on where you are in the world. You know, yes, we need to move away from combusting things to source the energy for, for these structures, but at the same time, we need to be using air source heat pumps where it makes sense because you've got more mild climates and you know, geothermal ground source type heat pumps in the extremely cold climates. So insulated thermal mass, uh, heated and cooled electrically with heat pumps of various types. And we've yeah. got some solar panels on the roof and, and maybe some battery storage. I mean, not just in the building, but in the form of, you know, some cars that are parked nearby to it. 
Yeah, and hopefully not too many cars parked nearby to it. That was another thing that stuck out to me really was this whole, you know, building car nexus. And I think it makes sense, but I don't know if I've ever thought about it in the way that he talked about it and, and that to really get the densities you need to enable that that mass transit piece, you've got to go, you know, bigger than the single family home, right? To more of these three and four story structures. And then as you do that, then you can justify, you know, subway or light rail. And then all of a sudden, you know, your need for the car for those trips to the store, what have you, really drop quickly. And so you can get a buy get by with a model where maybe you've got more ride sharing, you know, cars just available when you need them and you're riding your bike for short stuff. And then, you know, you can also take the subway or the light rail. I, I feel like in a lot of ways, it, it, cars in relation to what he spoke about, neighborhoods fighting uh, more density is, in a sense, I think, kind of centrally linked to cars. Because whenever you want to put high-density housing in any area, the question that everybody always comes up, well, where's everyone going to get a park? You know, (laughs) it is. It's like that's the first thing that everybody asks. And they're like, well, what if they have people over? Where is everybody going to park? It's going to, you know, I think he even mentioned like the chicken and the egg of the thing. You know, it's like if you don't put the density in, it doesn't drive the need for transit. But if you don't put the transit in, nobody wants to put the dent, you know. And so it, it, it just kind of compounds upon itself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can I can think about the whole, you know, discussion of parking and it's probably come up hundreds of times. But then, you know, if you zoom out a little bit and you look at the fact that every, you know, every block, every street is lined with these cars that that sit there 98% of the time, it, it becomes a little more of a head scratcher. And I'm not saying it it's going to be in a quick transition. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, this idea of these you know, walkable, walkable communities, bikeable communities where you've got, you know, great restaurants and, and shops just within a few blocks of the house. And then you've got more green space that you can explore. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who doesn't want to live in a neighborhood like that? Right. I mean, nobody goes to visit other places in the world and wants to stay in the, in the suburbs. Yeah. I know he mentioned uh, like senior living facilities, you know, some of these places, I don't know if you guys have, are, have any experience with those, but I've been to some of them and I'm kind of like, can I move into this place? Uh, <laughs> yeah, they got like movie theater. They got everything on site there. You know, they got a movie theater. They got, they got all this stuff, you know, and all these social events that everybody can attend. And I'm thinking like, man, maybe, maybe this is kind of the way to go. You know, it's kind of like a yeah. communal living idea. Well, and, and I guess that probably leads into, you know, what can we all do to, to ensure that we've got more of these, you know, denser, greener, more walkable communities. And, and this week we're, you know, sort of putting forth two options. The first is to take Vishan's advice and to reach out to your, you know, mayor city council and, you know, tell them that we need to stop building, you know, more subdevelopments and start building, you know, more of these, these denser walkable communities. We'll have talking points on our website for that. And then the second thing, which we've, covered, you know, multiple times before is start thinking about how you can make your existing home, regardless of what it is, more efficient. And, you know, a great first step there is, as Thomas will say, start with a, you know, an energy audit so that you can have a list of the things that are going to have the biggest impact. And you might be shocked, you know, how much money you can save uh, and, and how little investment you need on the front end with some of those options. So, yeah, search for you know local organizations in your area that can perform that home energy audit and and get one scheduled. 
Thomas, any other uh, home efficiency recommendations before we sign off? <laughs> just number one is just get things insulated. Before you go and spend money on heat pumps or changing and heating or anything else, wall insulation, ceiling insulation, and good, well-fitted window blinds. And that covers about 90% of it. Yeah, and I guess we should uh, call out the fact that Thomas, as far as I'm aware, doesn't receive any kickback from the insulation industry. <laughs> <laughs> no. And, and this is a total science-based recommendation. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks, as always, for, for tuning in. Uh, come back uh, after the new year. Uh, January 3rd, we'll be releasing our next episode talking about uh, biodiversity loss and climate change and, and the nexus there. Uh, in the meantime, and enjoy your holidays and hopefully some, some good time with uh, friends and family. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Mm-hmm.